morning, everyone. I'm, uh, we're glad that you're here to uh, hear from God's Word uh, with us today, Lord. And uh, yeah, we just, uh, sorry, I'm a little nervous this morning. I'm a little, uh, just not myself this morning. I'm not sure why, but um, I prepared the best I could for this. But unless God shows up and unless God does some work here, you're just going to be standing here watching me fumble for words. So why don't we pray? Uh, Lord, thank you so much, Lord, for being faithful to us. Thank you so much, Lord, that you can use even a, a fool like me to get up here and uh, deliver a message, Lord, because it's you, Lord, uh, that people are here to see, Lord. It's you that people are here to hear from, Lord. So we pray, Lord, that you would be lifted up here and be glorified, that you would use this message that I worked on, Lord, um, and fix it and make it right, Lord, for your people, Lord. You didn't. <clears throat> you have a plan and a purpose in this message, and a plan and a purpose in each person that you brought here's lives, Lord. So we pray, Lord, that this word would go forth, Lord, and and take root in their hearts, Lord, and grow and bear fruit, Lord. So again, Lord, we just give you all the glory and all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so. As you all know, I'm not rich. My name's Alex, and uh, we're going to be studying in Romans chapter 5 today, so if you guys could turn there, please. <clears throat> now, Romans chapter 5 is a really, one of my, probably one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, and the book of Romans is, I'd have to say, probably my favorite book as well. Um, it's a book that, I don't know if any of you heard of Adrian Rogers, but he calls it the Constitution of the Christian Life. I mean, there's so much in it. You can read through the book of Romans and learn so much from it, gleam so much from it, and start over and read from it again and learn a whole new set of things and learn a whole new, um, or hear a whole new thing from God through it. Um, it's just an awesome, amazing book. Um, so before we jump into chapter 5 of Romans, I'm going to have to give you a bit of a summary of the first four chapters um, you can sum up the first three chapters of Romans as God's case against humanity, God's indictment to humanity, and mankind is guilty as charged. Okay? We can learn in, Romans chapter, in the first three chapters of Romans um, that God's wrath is being poured out on mankind for unrighteousness and disobedience. We learn that no one will stand before God, innocent, in our broken, fallen condition, in mankind's broken, fallen condition. We have no hope to stand before him. God's wrath is being revealed to, the, to people for their unrighteousness, and then at some future date, it will be ultimately revealed. And we call that the, the judgment seat of God, where um, mankind will be judged for their lives. And unless something happens, mankind has no hope in standing there before God and not being sent uh, to hell not being separated from God for eternity. Paul breaks mankind into two categories in the first three chapters, and we can call them the unrighteous and the self-righteous, or the immoral person. Okay, The immoral person says there's no God, lives their lives however they want, has nobody to answer to, they, they feel like they're unaccountable to anybody at all, that there is no creator. They're just here, this is their existence, and they'll do whatever they want with it. That's the immoral man, the unrighteous man. Paul also calls him the heathen or the pagan. Um, and then we have the self-righteous man, the religious man, the moral man. 
the man that goes to church every Sunday, the man that follows the rules, the man that doesn't steal, doesn't cheat, doesn't lie, does everything the way he's supposed to, does everything that man has said is the right thing to do, um, or religion has said is the right thing to do. Um, neither one has right standing with God. The, the immoral man, the unrighteous man, doesn't really care too much about God or, or what he says is right and wrong. And the religious man, or the, or the self-righteous man, looks at it as he can get to God by his own effort, by his own human effort. And Paul clearly says that the unrighteous and the self-righteous will not be spared. On that day of judgment, they will not be spared. They have no leg to stand on. <clears throat> the problem is and was in mankind is that we are dead spiritually, living our lives for our flesh, living our lives ruled by our flesh. Or we can call it the carnal man. And the Bible teaches us that the carnal man is at war with God. <clears throat> the carnal man's life is hostile to God. You can turn to uh, Romans 8-7 for a second. There's a verse there that uh, helps explain that. Romans 8, 7 says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. You know, the carnal mind, the, the fleshly mind, the, the mind of the, of the life that's just driven by fleshly desires, is at war with God, is enmity with God. It can't be in subject to God's law, because God's law is a spiritual matter. It's not just obedience to the law that is required of us. It's true submission, true uh, surrender to God's law uh, that will make a difference in our lives. That will bring the peace okay, that we need. Um, also, you don't have to turn there, but in Colossians 1.21 says, Once you were alienated, alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. We were alienated from God, separated from God, because we're his enemies in our minds, in, in who we are, in, in, what, in what we think, in the way that we think, because of our evil behavior, because of our sinful lives, because of our fleshly, carnal lives. We're enemy with God and thus separated from him. And it's really all we know, because we are spiritually dead. Mankind, apart from some intervention, is spiritually dead. If you could turn to Ephesians chapter 2 for a minute, please. Paul says this uh, in a little different way here in Ephesians, okay? He says in, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, and following its desires and thoughts like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now, 
right in the beginning of, uh, of, verse, uh, of chapter 2 here, verse 1 in Ephesians, right? He says, you were dead in your sins and transgressions. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. So we have a life, but we're still dead. I mean, how does that play out? I mean, this is proving the point where I'm saying that we are spiritually dead. We still live, but our spirit is dead. That's what we need. Um, in Romans it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. So we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of that glory of God. And what's our penalty for that? Death. So we're walking around in this life spiritually dead. You know, no one can look at the first three chapters of uh, Romans and think, well, that doesn't fit me. I mean, don't take my word for it. Look at it yourself. Read it. It speaks to all of mankind. None of us can say, well, that doesn't apply to me. And the main point Paul is trying to get across in those first three chapters of Romans is that we need to be rescued. The need for someone, somehow, to save us. If Paul doesn't get that point across to the readers, um, it would be a pretty bleak story, pretty hopeless story for mankind. So in chapter 4, Paul introduces a concept that the Jew of the time had been familiar with. The remedy. Paul introduces the remedy or the rescue for our fallen, broken condition. The deliverance from our death sentence. The deliverance from that penalty that we're owed. And that is a term called justification. And simply, justification means to be right with God, in right standing with God. Like our charges have been dismissed. And I said earlier, it's like our God's, Paul's, uh, addressing the indictment against mankind. So justification is like the dismissal of those charges, not guilty before the judge. So justification is an important word for us. It's an important concept for us to understand. Not only is he to say we need to be justified, Paul goes on to tell us how we can then be justified. And he says that there's only one possible way, and that's by faith. It's not by works. It's not by human effort. It's by faith. Faith is the only way God provides for man to be justified. And that faith, in other words for faith, is trust, reliance, belief. And he uses Abraham as an example of this. In Genesis 15, 6, it says, Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham trust, trusted in God's promises, believed in him and what he had said. He believed that God had the ability to fulfill his promises. And because of that, because of Abraham's belief, God credited him righteous. It wasn't anything that Abraham did. Any, I mean, this was before the law was even given. It wasn't Abraham's obedience to the law. It wasn't that Abraham was perfect. He did one thing, one simple act of faith. He put it in God, and he was deemed righteous. God justified Abraham. Only God can justify us. And it was through Abraham's faith that it was granted. We don't want to look at our faith or our belief as like a work, as something that we do on our own. God is the one who does the justifying. Faith is just the avenue in which that, uh, or the door by which that justification is given us. 
Faith is the only door that justification will, justification will come for mankind. <clears throat> there is no other way God provides for justification. And we need that. I mean, we have to look at our lives, and we don't have to look very hard at our lives, actually, to realize that we are not right with God. Whether it's by our actions or our thoughts or our behaviors or, or whatever, um, mankind cannot look at their lives and say, hey, I'm, I'm right with God. I have an opportunity or a chance to get into God's heaven by how I've lived my life. Justification is the only way. <clears throat> for the church in Rome and for us now, that faith or trust or belief or reliance is in the God-man, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> faith in his work on the cross his death, his burial, and his resurrection, his work that brings many sons to glory, faith in him will make us right in God's sight. Faith in him is what justifies us. Now, it would be irresponsible for me to move on to chapter 5 at this point um, without giving an invitation to all of you. You know, I don't know all of you. Some of you guys here are new, or I just haven't gotten to know you yet. Um, but as we look at chapter 5, these are, we're going to be looking at blessings that are for the justified. God's provision for people that are justified. Okay? So if you're not justified, they really won't apply to you. So, you know, this is a time, you know, usually we don't do this like in the middle of the service, but I just want to offer that opportunity to you all now. If you're not right with God, I mean, you don't need to get up here. You don't need to come up to the altar or raise your hand or anything. You can settle it right now in your hearts. You can just say to, the, say to God, look, you know, I know that this is talking about me. I know I'm not justified. I know I'm at war with you. I know that my life is not right. I know that I cannot get into heaven by my own effort. And ask him to help you. Ask him to help you put faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Ask him to be justified. So, starting in Romans chapter 5, if you can flip back there now, please, if you haven't yet. Starting in verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now Paul starts off uh, chapter 5 with that word, therefore. So Paul is now building on the assumption that he's made his point that there is only one way for mankind to be found right with God. There was only one way for mankind to be justified. And as you study the book of Romans, you realize that it's a book of logic. It's a lot more than that, but it, it, has, it is a book of logic. It has logical conclusions to statements that Paul makes. Paul presents evidence or facts which lead to only one reasonable conclusion. That's what Paul uses. That's why Paul uses the word, therefore, pretty often, at least four times in the book of Romans. He's building on the logical conclusion of what he had said previous. You know, in this case, 
in chapter 5, when he starts off with therefore, it's that mankind will be justified by faith. And in the next five verses, Paul presents the blessings of that justification. He's building on that fact. He's building on, or he's, he's, uh, he's building on the fact that we've been justified by faith, and now he's going to reveal to us some of the blessings of what that justification brings. And Paul says here, in the beginning of uh, verse 5, chapter 1, having been justified by faith, we have these things. These are things that we possess. These are things that we have right now in the present, not just some future time, not just for our past. These are things that all people who are justified have right now with God. And the first one that he mentions is peace with God. And that peace comes through, uh, to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the mediator for mankind, for us. He is our Prince of Peace. Apart from him, we are at war with God, enemies to God. The carnal mind is en uh, enmity with God, like we read earlier. You know, it's not that God declares war on us. It's that we have rebelled against him, our creator. Rebellion against the king is a crime, right? If we had a king in this country and we rebelled against him, what would happen to us? Right? <laughs> Execution, right? We'd be executed or thrown in jail. Or the dungeon, I guess, right? But most often what happens was the execution, or you'd be exiled. You'd be put out of the kingdom. You'd be out in the wilderness. We're not with peace with God. We're no longer under the protection of the king or the provision of the king. We'd be separated from him in his kingdom. We'd be out there in the wilderness fending for ourselves, to defend ourselves, to try and get through this life on our own. That's pretty scary. Now, if we wanted to rejoin the kingdom, we would have to put ourselves back under the rule of the king. We would have to then submit to him, surrender to him unconditionally. We'd have to meet the terms of peace that the king offers, or the king decides to offer, and he does, and that the terms of our uh, re-entry into the kingdom to be at peace with him is surrender, unconditional surrender. And that is in the way of uh, putting our faith in Jesus Christ. You know, before I was born again, before I was saved, before I was justified, I wouldn't have considered myself at war with God. In fact, I never gave God much thought at all. I just lived my life the way I want to. I never really considered that my life was openly hostile to God, that everything I was doing, every, every decision I made was in complete rebellion to what God would have for me. I never considered what he thought about anything. I didn't live my life accountable to him. But, like, I, didn't, I didn't consider myself at war with God. Like I said, I never gave it really much thought. But that doesn't excuse me. It didn't excuse me. He made me, whether I acknowledged it or not. And everything I did was in complete rebellion to his authority. Now, I can't speak much. You know, I was talking earlier about the carnal man or the immoral man. That would be me, the immoral man. 
And then we have the moral man that Paul talks about earlier in Romans, the religious man. I can't speak much to that. I, I wasn't that person. I didn't go to church. I didn't think I was following some set of rules or some law, and I was somehow earning good standing with God. I, I didn't care. But the religious man is just as guilty, just as much at war with God as I was, thinking that they're going to somehow earn their way into heaven. Apart from justification, we have no peace with God. We are still his enemies. That's why I wanted to take that break a minute ago and give you that opportunity, that invitation, because all of these blessings that we're going to be going through right now don't apply to us if we haven't been justified. They don't apply to us if we haven't put our faith in Jesus. The second one Paul talks about is access to God or access to his grace. So because of that peace that we now have, we have access to the king. You know, would an enemy or a rebel have access to the king? Would the king's guards even allow a rebel into the, you know, the town or to the throne room of, God, of the king? Absolutely not. We're his enemy. In fact, even the Old Testament Jew would understand this probably better than we do, but um, they didn't have access to the king, did they? They didn't have access to God. The, there was a veil separating them from the holies to the holiest of holies. And before that, there was a, another section. I mean, the whole, the whole temple and the tabernacle was set up and designed to say, you can come this far, but no further. But what happened when Jesus died? That veil was torn, giving access to the king, very access to the throne room of God, to anyone who would come through him. Access to God, access to his grace, a way for us to be in the presence of God, to go before his throne and receive his favor, his provision, his protection. That's just amazing. Amazing that we have an opportunity to go in before the king and ask him for help. Ask him for protection. Ask him for provision. It's an amazing thing to think about. It's an amazing blessing. But apart from that peace that we have by being justified, by putting our faith in Jesus, we wouldn't have that. The third thing Paul talks about here is grace to stand or grace to stand in. You know, these four things that we're going to be looking at or maybe, maybe a few more, but the blessings of being justified are really cool, but this one just stands out to me for some reason. I'm not sure why. It's like my favorite, to stand you know, and Kelly talked a few weeks ago about meditating on God's word, and uh, I meditated on this word stand. Like, it just it struck me. Why stand? Why not sit? Why not rest? And that may have seemed pretty silly to everybody, but that's just how my mind works. Stand. Like, I would much rather set up a recliner and sit down in God's grace. I would much rather, you know, lay down with a blanket or something or, or something like that. Why, why not stand? Or a wise stand. Standing isn't as comfortable as sitting, is it? It's not as comfortable as laying down and reclining, right? It's not as relaxing. Standing takes effort, doesn't it? You're all sitting down right now. I'm, I have to stand up here. I know it's taking me a lot of effort to stand up here. 
more than it is for you guys. Well, I don't know. It might be taking a lot of effort for you guys to be listening to me for this long. But, um, but it takes effort. It takes some energy to, to be expended to, uh, to stand. Standing also kind of speaks to being alert, right? When I was in the Army and I was stuck on guard duty, I'd be out in the middle of nowhere, Fort Leonardwood, Missouri, and Mike knows what I'm talking about. But um, it's just 70,000 acres of woods, basically. And they'd have, like, these little shacks, and I'd have to stand out there for four hours with a dummy rifle pretending to guard something. It was the most ridiculous thing. And I remember thinking, why, man, why can't we at least sit down? Nobody's, who's going to come and steal whatever the... I don't, even know, I don't even know if there's anything in the, in the little shed that I was standing in front of. But the idea of standing was so that I would be alert, so I would be ready. He was training me to be ready. Standing has the idea of being ready, like I said, and the idea you think about standing, standing fast. It also, thinks about, it also makes me think about standing my ground, like not being moved, not being pushed, not being taken out. <coughs> you know, and this world is full of things that will try to move us. This world is full of things that will look to knock us over or cause us to fall. And it's God's grace that prevents that from happening. If we stand in it. If we stand in that grace. No matter what this world throws at us, we cannot be moved. No one can pluck us from his hand. No one. If we stand in that grace. Standing in God's grace does not mean that we will be comfortable, does it? Because I think Paul would have used the word sitting or resting then. It's not quite as comfortable standing. It doesn't mean we will be free from difficulty or pain or sorrow. We're going to face those things. But standing in God's grace and by God's grace equips us to deal with it. I think sometimes when we face those difficult things, it's our first response to flee or to run. And God doesn't say that either. Paul doesn't say run in God's grace or walk in God's grace. He's saying stand. Stay put. God knows what's happening. God knows where you need to be. God knows how to equip you to get through it. So stand. Stand in that grace. God's grace equips us and trains us to hold our ground. You know, our justification isn't for us to just coast or kick back on cruise control. Like I said, it wouldn't say stand there then. It would say rest or it would say something else. But apart from the access we have to God's grace, because of the peace that we have, because we are justified, we can't stand in this world. We'll fall. Fourth thing Paul talks about here in Romans 5 is joy or rejoice in our hope. When we think about what's been promised to us, when we think about that we have peace with God now, when we think about that we have access to his grace, we think about that we have been justified, that we can stand, the only response to that is joy. 
And not just joy, rejoicing. When I see the word rejoice, I think of a celebration. I don't know about you guys, but it's like joy that can't be contained. Cheering and carrying on, and I think of like David when he carried the ark back into Jerusalem. Even his wife was mocking him for being undignified, and he was like, you know what? I don't, I don't even care. I don't care how undignified this looks to anybody. He's rejoicing in God. He didn't care what anyone thought. He was overcome with joy, and he wanted everyone to see it. He wanted everyone else to join in. He wanted to infect others with the joy that he was overcome by. That's rejoicing. That's the kind of rejoicing I want to do when I think about what God's done for me. We rejoice in that hope that one day we will share in his glory. We will be present with him for eternity. Apart from the grace we stand in, because of the access we have, because we have peace with God by our justification, we would have no joy. We would have no hope in that future glory. Nothing to look forward to. A pretty bleak existence. So much blessing from one simple act of obedience. Trusting in Jesus and being justified. But Paul's not done. (laughs) Verses 3 and 4 reveal more blessing. Believe it or not, these are blessings. Verses 3 and 4 say, And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character and character hope. Verse 3, uh, Paul says, and not only that, so on top of all that, in addition to all of those blessings that uh, he just stated, we can glory in tribulation. Or the NIV, I think it says, boasts in tribulation. Notice how it says, boast in tribulation, not about tribulation or suffering. There's another, uh, ver- another other versions use suffering. Because as believers, for the justified... We know that tribulation or suffering serves a purpose in our lives. It produces in us something, perseverance. Now, like with that word stand, I was saying I get stuck on words and I was like looking up what the Greek word stand was and all these weird things. And I did the same thing with this word suffering or tribulation. It's pretty interesting, so I thought I'd share it with you. The word tribulation or suffering here is from a Greek word which means the process of squashing olives or grapes in a press. Now that doesn't sound very pleasant for the grape or the olive, does it? Maybe the guy doing the pressing it's cool for, but you know, as far as the grape goes or the olive, not a very pleasant process. But what comes out of the press is more valuable than what goes into it. And what is, of left, what is left in the press is of no use. We went to a cider mill out in Connecticut a few months, last year sometime, and it's basically the same idea. A press, they take apples, they put them in between these two big pieces of wood, they press them down, and what comes out is cider. What's left is just this mash of junk that's good for nothing. I think they feed it to the pigs or something. But the idea here for us is through that suffering, through that tribulation, that squashing, that pressure, what comes out is more valuable. I mean, I don't drink wine or anything, but, you know, 
there are bottles of wine worth hundreds and hundreds of dollars. You know what I mean? How much are grapes? You can go to the supermarket and buy grapes, I don't know, a couple bucks a pound, right? What comes out is more important than what went in. That's the idea. That's the process of uh, tribulation, of suffering. <clears throat> the tribulation we go through in this life produces in us perseverance. It squashes like perseverance out of us. And what is perseverance? It's the ability to endure, to not quit, to not give up. That's of more value to us than what we had before. What do we have before? What do we have before in our old lives, before we were justified? Fear, lack of faith, patterns of giving up, giving in to temptation in the ways of the world. Tribulation produces uh, perseverance in us, and that's a blessing by being justified. And this perseverance then produces in us character, or proven character. It's more probably a better word, a better way of saying it. Now, what is our character? Our character is our qualities, what we're made up of, what we really are, who we are when things get hard and painful that show our character. Sticking it out, not quitting when it gets tough, proves that we are who we say we are. It shows it talks about our sincerity, our genuineness. That's the kind of character we want. We can't want the kind of character. We want to be made of something that can stand the pressure of this life, stand uh, the pressure of this life and keep going. Now, the idea of proven character is, is an interesting one, right? God knows our character. God knows exactly what we are capable of and what we're not capable of. He's not proving it to himself. It's for us. Our character is being proven so we know what we really are, so we know what we're really made of. Are we who we say we are? If we say we're following Jesus, are we going to follow Jesus when things get hard, when it's not popular, when it may cause us pain? Now that character produces in us more hope. It's like a guarantee. This whole process is like a guarantee for us that we are his, that he's taking an interest in us. The tribulation that we face that causes uh, to produce perseverance in us and then character is like a proof to us that God's interested in our lives, that he's conforming us, that he's changing us, that he's involved and it's a guarantee that someday we will be face to face with them. Verse 5 says, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, hope is confident expectation. We know what that is, right? The word hope here in the Bible is not like we think of hope or the world thinks of hope. You know, I hope I don't get hit by a car if I cross the street, or I hope I win the lottery, things like that. The idea of hope in the Bible is that it's expected. It's, it's, it's going to happen. It just hasn't happened yet. That's the idea of hope from the Bible. We have the promise of God that we are justified by faith. And as proof of that, he pours out his spirit in us as a deposit. So not only God make the promise to us, he like gives us a deposit to prove it. Like, look, this is, this is how much I love you. This is how much I'm coming back for you. This is how much I care about you. I'm giving you a deposit to prove it, to show us how much he loves us. 
Uh, in verse 6, it says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. Paul says here, without strength. Another way of saying without strength is helpless or hopeless. Helpless to do anything about our condition. Powerless to save ourselves. Powerless to do anything about it. And he says here, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Due time, when the world was ready to receive its king. And the world was in a point where it's connected enough for the kingdom message to be distributed. For the news to spread that the king had come. That's when the God-man Jesus died for us, the ungodly. That's what we were. Paul's point in verse 7 isn't so much about if someone might be worth dying for, righteous or not righteous, and somebody might die for him. I mean, the point is that nobody's righteous. No one's righteous, no, not one, the Bible says. And I want to end here. I kind of rushed through that last little bit, sorry, but I wanted to get to verse 8 because it's just like my favorite verse. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's just such an amazing verse. I wrote it on the wall of my house. (laughs) That's how much I like this verse. You know, in a world where talk is cheap, people say a lot of things. Advertisers tell you you need this, you need that, you know, you you need this new car, you need this exercise routine, you need all these things. People say a lot of things. Politicians make promises constantly that they don't mean, that they don't follow through on, that they can't follow through on. God doesn't just say he loves us. He demonstrates it. He shows it. He shows us how much he loves us. While we were still sinners in rebellion, Jesus went to the cross and died for us. And Another word that I hopped on in this was demonstrated. I don't know if any of you guys have ever been to a trade show or maybe had a vacuum repairman or a vacuum salesman come to your house and they show you their vacuum or their tool <clears throat> in comparison to all the other vacuums or all the other tools. And they're trying to convince you on how great theirs is, how much better theirs is than anyone else's. What they're really trying to do is convince you how much you need it. And God demonstrates to us how much we need his love. That just blows me away. While we were still sinners, still as enemies, he died for us. Jesus went to the cross and died. He took our punishment. He paid our debt and made a way for us to be right with God. He justified us by his work on the cross. So as I close here, I just encourage you guys to read the book of Romans yourself. Don't, don't just take my word for it. I just scratched the surface. Um, but think about the blessings of being justified. We have peace with God. We have access to God's grace. We can stand in that grace, and we have joy and hope. <clears throat> Excuse me. So let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you um, again for just this opportunity to get together and uh, learn from you and to worship you hear from your word, Lord, and I pray that um, as pathetically as I attempted to deliver this message, Lord, that you would clean it up and that you would make it um, just make it receivable by people, Lord, make uh, just clear away all the the stubble and the brush, Lord, and that people would receive um, 
your word, Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.